0: It's time for Nordic on Tap. Welcome to our podcast featuring interviews, music, folktales, and lots of hygge, all with a Nordic flavor. I'm your host, Eric Stavney. In the late 1980s, I saw a production by Henrik Ibsen. Ibsen, if you don't know, is celebrated probably as Norway's greatest playwright. He lived from, say, 1830 to just after the turn of the 1900s. And he wrote this play, Per Gint, this is the one I saw, originally a five-act play that was impossible to stage as Ibsen originally wrote it. In fact, even before that, he actually wrote Per Gint in verse, as a long poem, based on this folk tale collected by the folklorists Asbjørnsen and Mua, who we've heard a lot from on this podcast. Ibsen did revise his poem into a play, but at the time it was still very technically difficult to mount, to stage in the late 1800s. It still is difficult, because it's got 40 different scenes, it shifts from The realistic to the fantastic and back to the realistic. And modern stagecraft can handle that because they can fade out lights in one scene and the actors can sort of walk over and fade up in another area of the stage and that's another scene and you can have dream sequences and things like that. But they had trouble handling that back then. The story of Peer Gint, (laughs) well, we'll get to that later. At the time, it left me scratching my head. Here I was a college student. I was studying Norwegian. I had read several Ibsen plays. Ibsen sort of knocks you over the head with his messages in the other plays. It's it's very hard to avoid understanding what he's saying. In this play, Per Gint, I, I really didn't know what to think. Now, Ibsen commissioned his friend Edvard Grieg from Bergen to write incidental music for the play, background music, if you will, in 1875. And in fact, now Edvard Grieg's music from that, which has been reformatted somewhat, is much more famous than Per Gint is. But I I have to say, both of these people, Edvard Grieg, Henrik Ibsen, as a folklorist, I love what they did, because they both included folk beliefs and folklore, like trolls, for example, in their work. Now, regrettably, this production that I saw of Pergint didn't use Greek's music, except for a single song sung by the character Solve, Pergint's long and steady love throughout the play. Solveig's song of Longing and love absolutely captivated me, and it's been one of my all-time favorites of Grieg's music. And so, when I started this Nordic on Tap podcast in 2019, it was inevitable that I would find some excuse to play you this piece, sung if possible in the original Norwegian. But I've held back. Who could sing it? Who could do it justice? I'd hoped to meet, magically, some kind of accomplished classical singer of Grieg who could speak to why Grieg's music seems to invoke the very essence of Norway, its natural world, its beautiful fjords, and its folklore heritage. Well, it's become my great fortune to know such a singer, who is in fact founder and director of the Northwest Grieg Society in the Seattle area, and she is of Norwegian heritage. And I caught up with her about two weeks before she performed, yes, indeed, she performed Solve's song as part of a concert of Greek's incidental music for Per Gint. Her name is Laura Logie, and here is our interview.
1: Well, I grew up in Montana, of all places. My parents moved there when I was one from Seattle, so I was born here, actually and just really enjoyed growing up where we were immersed in nature and could go fishing or hiking or skiing anytime we wanted to. My mom is a piano teacher, and so music has been integral to my entire life. I tell people I've been playing the piano as long as I can remember, but you wouldn't know it if you heard me. I switched to singing at some point, middle school or something, is when I decided that singing was more fun. And that's also when I started to study Norwegian, my family sent me out to Minnesota in the summers, starting in middle school, to Norwegian camp out there with the Concordian language. Was buildings. that sc- yeah, to- Skogfjorden. Yep, Skookfjorden. No yeah, it was a great adventure, and then I ended up counseling there one summer. It was again integral to my long-term education of Norwegian culture, language, music, all of that, and then after living in montana for 17 years of my life at 18 i went to saint olaf college in minnesota so just on that norwegian trajectory i was headed straight for it while at saint Olaf, i studied voice uh, and norwegian i have a bachelor of music degree in voice and opted not to take a science class and took a second pottery class instead so i do not have an official norwegian degree but i have all of the requirements For a Norwegian degree minus science for Bachelor of Arts. Um, And I don't regret it one bit. (laughs) Pottery was great. After that, I actually received a scholarship for a student from St. Olaf to spend a year in Norway studying. And so I lived in Stavanger and studied Norwegian or Nordic. I wasn't just Norwegian, Nordic song and chamber music there, not realizing how that would Direct my life, you know, two decades later, (laughs) because that's what I do now. It was a great experience in a lot of ways. I shared an apartment with my third cousin once removed, who is my age. We're off by generation because of who moved to to the US and who stayed in Norway, and had a wonderful relationship with them and was taken in as part of the family. My Norwegian mom. Insisted that the boonod my parents had given me for college graduation uh, that I make it myself. So, oh boy, yeah. <laughs> so during the year, I learned how to embroider. Uh, I did a lot of embroidering and I hand sewed the shirt together. And once all the embroidery on just the the dress part of the boonod was done, and then then I paid somebody else to actually sew it together. After that, I didn't know what I wanted to do quite yet. I Applied to grad schools. Honestly, I didn't like where I got in, so I wanted to reapply. So I spent a year in Italy instead, studying privately, learning Italian, which I didn't realize until many years later that I would be using my Italian to get permission to perform a song by a Norwegian composer because the poetry was by an Italian poet and it wasn't out of copyright yet. So I needed to get permission. And the Norwegian composer didn't know how to get in touch with him, but I spoke enough Italian that I could just. Figure it out and we got permission. So that's what I've used my Italian for, beyond singing in it, of course. Right, of course. And I ended up in Boston for graduate school, have a master's degree in vocal performance. I didn't really do a whole lot of Nordic music there beyond my own exploration. Um, But coming out here to Seattle after that is when I started doing a whole lot more of it. I've always been passionate about sharing it but in the last um six seven years since lisa bergman passed the mostly nordic chamber music series on to me and then when i started the grieg society it's just i've been incredibly immersed in it and it's opened up some great opportunities to perform music that otherwise would not be performed in this country it's been exciting and and a great way to evangelize a repertoire that i'm head over heels in love with
0: yeah, I know you've said elsewhere how important how much you like discovering music and then sharing that with people.
1: Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think a big part of that too especially with the Nordic repertoire is the languages because they're not they're not languages that are taught in music schools. Most singers have never encountered Danish or Norwegian or Swedish, let alone Finnish or Icelandic. And so as part of what I do as well is I I coach a lot of singers on one the repertoire but also the languages so they can pronounce them and actually can you know share the music themselves as well but on top of that in Norwegian there's so many fabulous dialects and there's some great songs out there as well as pieces that are that are written for a soloist with an orchestra that are based on these dialects and so it's just fascinating to me that the one the feel of the language in the mouth but how it colors the sounds in the music as well and just creates this ambiance mm-hmm. of being in norway just based on the music and the language can you talk to that a little bit more about what
0: what you see or how that's what what is that sound what is that sound,
1: the Norwegian musical sound?
0: I mean, I think of Grieg. I, I love minor key. Mm-hmm. So right. See.
1: Oh, yeah. melancholy. Yes. yes melancholy yes. is the term that is typically associated with with Grieg and with the Norwegian sound. And historically, it's based on much on the, on the folk music, which has a lot of minor in it, but it has an additional um, raised fourth, which sometimes we call a tritone. Uh, and that actually comes from the, the or the birch flute, which Got is one. based on, mm-hmm. on overtones me mm-hmm. too. I learned how to play one song in Norway on it. And so that is played using the overtone series, which creates a raised fourth rather than a typical force. And so to, instead of being da, 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 it ends up being da, 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 da. da. So it gives that, that little mm-hmm. tiny, weird dissonance to it that we wouldn't wouldn't normally hear. And that is that is integrated in so much Norwegian music. Uh, it gives a sense of the people and their connection to the nature around them, the animals, the the plants, their mystical exploration of all of these beings within their folk culture of the trolls and the Nisir and the Holdra and all of these fabulous creatures. I'll just kind of get interplayed into the music and huge part of that is that the language and music are intertwined doesn't matter what language it is but pretty much every language i've encountered when it's associated with the music of that of that culture of that country it is very distinctly associated with the sounds and the rhythms of that language um, and Norwegian is very distinctive in that. Obviously with with Grieg, there's that melancholy, but there's also a brightliness that comes with it and a lightness, sort of a sparkle, if you mm-hmm. will. Mm-hmm. So it's it's this dichotomy of the dark and the light that you feel in Norway too, between the summer and the winter, you know, this depth of sadness, but this wealth of brilliant light. And it all comes together in the language and in the music. Obviously I enjoy that a lot. On top of that, within Norwegian, of course, there's two official languages. There's the Bukmål, which is derived from the Danish, and then there's the Nynorsk, which is derived from dialects, essentially. And even within that, there ends up being different styles or sounds that come out of it due to the language, especially with Grieg. Grieg's music, his songs are so tied to the language that when he's composing music to german texts it sounds very german it still sounds very much greek but it sounds very german when he's composing music to danish or bookmol texts it sounds like well it's that's probably the sound most people associate with greek but he composed a whole bunch of songs in various dialects from bergen to Rogaland to telemark even some sort of old norse if you will and each of those possesses a certain coloring that comes with the dialect and from those people from that region. And he was animate about creating music based on the language. When he was writing in, more than he was writing Haugtusa, he even said that the, the music composes itself just from the text mm. and he just loved it. Um, and so I try to bring that, I guess, to audiences as well in in performances as much as possible and then of course enjoy doing it myself while i'm performing now what you're saying about grieg and that
0: the, the language really helped write the music it suggests that he was always the lyricist or or he took somebody's uh, and set it to music
1: yes so composers typically find a poem that speaks to them And then they use that to set those words to music. So the poem happens first. So Greg would read, he'd read through these sets of poetry, however he got his hands on them. And if he was inspired by that poetry, he would compose something to it. I see. So why don't we
0: go back to kind of what drives you today? What inspires you?
1: What inspires me?
0: Both in music, but also maybe role models people you respect?
1: I have benefited greatly from uh, people who have come before me within this repertoire. I have some wonderful role models and supporters in uh, Bill Halverson, in Sylvia Ekes, some wonderful colleagues in Norway, I know but I would say the greatest supporter and role model that I have currently is Lisa Bergman six or seven years ago, two weeks before I was due with my second child, she gave me a call and asked if I wanted to take over mostly Nordic. I was totally unexpecting, not not expecting that at all. Um, And I said, you know, I'm going to be giving birth here pretty soon. I need to think about it. But I came around and realized that that was, that was what I wanted to do. So I shadowed her for a year and then she let me take the reins and has been there every step of the way. Anytime I have a question or anytime I come across an issue that I wasn't expecting, she's there with her wisdom and her guidance and to help me find musicians when I'm looking for something specific. So she's been a, a wonderful role model. Probably the most important person with collaboration is Steven Luxon. He's a composer, a pianist, a collaborator. He also produces his own music series down in Des Moines. But he is equally nerdy and obsessed with this repertoire and so we enable each other egg each other on and create concerts together and produce them together and even during the pandemic we would get together periodically fully masked distanced and just read through music and it was so therapeutic to be able to do that explore repertoire that Well, first of all, we'd have to order it from Norway because that was the only place we could get it. Right. But to have somebody who understands the passion that comes with this repertoire and with sharing it and creating that music um, has really benefited my whole psyche as well as my career trajectory, if you will. So I try to collaborate with him as much as humanly possible. Of all the things out there in terms of genres, I read... More kind of classical versus yeah. say, yeah, yeah, you would Yeah, say. classical. Every once in a while I get into some folk songs, but they're usually classical arrangements of folk songs. Yeah. Pretty much all I do, all the music I do is classically based. So chamber music, art song, oratorio, opera, all of this stuff, all of that's classical. So I'm classically trained and that's that's the area where I really focus. And there's plenty of repertoire to keep, keep me um, entertained for several lifetimes. <laughs> Now, another angle I've seen you've been involved in is opera. you Mm -hmm. want to talk about that a bit? Sure. I actually have not done an opera for several years. Part of that is COVID. But part of that is that I've really focused so much more on the production side, as well as focusing on chamber music and collaborating with various conductors and orchestras to do more Nordic repertoire on their programs, usually including me singing, of course. But, you know, I've done the path of a typical American singer following the opera. And I, I don't know how many roles I've sung, 15, maybe around 15 opera roles that I've done. I've appeared with the Seattle Opera as a chorister in some of their shows. In fact, the last opera I was in with them was Die in der Hollander or The Flying Dutchman. And it's the only time I've played a Norwegian on stage because okay. it takes place in Norway. Uh, however, the costuming was such that you couldn't even see my blonde hair. So <laughs> there was that. there's that. I've done a lot of outreach, opera outreach into elementary schools and retirement homes and the like. And that that is it's so much fun to do that because you're sharing the raw power of the human voice with all these kids. There's no amplification when when I'm singing. I don't, I hate microphones, even like speaking into a microphone is, is challenging for me, but it's so cool to to hear and see the kids' reactions to that. And then the questions they ask, just the exposure to the art form, um, is so valuable for them and for us as well, to be able to make that connection to children who are just learning and exploring the world from, from their place to give them that opportunity to be able to hear something. so raw and pure coming out of the human body. So opera is a huge part of it. Of course, you know, we studied German and Italian and French in in school. So I've sung in all those opera languages. And then in addition to the Nordic languages and a few others as well. So opera is definitely a big part of my growth as an artist and as a musician and a performer. I love acting too. So that also gets to was add, ask you about add that, to that yeah. as well. <laughs>
0: I read that you also do you do some coaching and and work with people on the, with their music and their voices.
1: Yes, yeah. So primarily with that, it's language coaching. So it's it's singers who are exploring repertoire from the Nordic regions. Essentially, is what what I really um, that's where my little niche is. And, you know, part of this is inspiring singers, but also providing access to repertoire that they wouldn't normally be able to access because Norwegian and Norwegian repertoire and the language and the diction and any of the Nordic countries basically is not part of typical American music education. So just making sure that people who are interested in the repertoire have access to the resources they need. I'm thrilled to be able to help them and yeah, get more yeah. more singers out there performing this
0: music so in terms of the things that you, you do head up that you it, mostly nordic are you the artistic director what's your role yeah
1: i am yeah. the artistic director of the mostly nordic chamber music series this year is our 26th season we had to take a year and a half off because of covid because who hasn't actually it's probably yeah, close really. to two years right but this year we're back with a full season of six concerts we do one uh, for each of the five Nordic countries. And then a few years ago, I added a sixth concert, which is a Nordic neighbor concert. So there's about nine countries that neighbor the Nordic countries. And then we can explore the repertoire from those and how it how it connects to, that, to the region because borders are arbitrary. Cultures, they're mixed up from one to the next and there's so many similarities amongst them, amongst neighbors. So I really want to be able to explore that with that, that sixth concert. We've been at the Nordic museum for 26 years, 26 seasons. I should say Lisa passed it on to me after 21 years. So she started it. It was her baby. And then gently gingerly handed it to me. And because of change of location and whatnot, it's really morphed from, uh, it used to be a dinner theater type setting with a smorgasbord that went with it that, you know, associated with the country, but in the new venue, food wasn't really an option. And then COVID hit and food is definitely not an option right now. I've really focused much more on programming the music and making it a musical experience as opposed to a food and music experience. Next year, we will not be at the Nordic Museum. The Greek Society has, which I also run, has the, the structure to be able to produce it. Um, so we will be within the Seattle area. We'll still be doing our six concerts. And it'll still be the mostly Nordic chamber music series, just not, not in, in Osberg Hall at the Nordic Museum.
0: Why don't we go ahead and turn to Grieg and Peer Gint and how sure. that sort of came about, that mm-hmm. music.
1: Yeah. So Grieg was approached by Ibsen after he had written the play Peer Gint. It's a five-act play to create some incidental music to go with it. And Grieg worked on it for a long time. He actually really hated the process. He was not really thrilled with what came out of it just because it was too Norwegian, like grotesquely Norwegian, which it really truly is. And it makes sense because Ibsen's plays, even Pure Gint, which just seems so fantastical and off the deep end in some ways, is commentary on humanity. On the human condition and that one specifically is on the norwegian cultural humanity and their behaviors and choices in life and how that affects the people around them so Grieg, even after he wrote it, he's like oh this hall of the mountain king it's just too norwegian <laughs> but it was a great resource for him obviously it's still performed all the time the the sweets the music's incorporated into everything in our culture we hear all the time and my kids sing morning mood all the time i mean it's just they're little earworms that just get stuck and they're used for so many things and they have so much power the music has so much power behind it that it just it just holds on uh he's ended up taking the music from the incidental music because performing incidental music itself is kind of awkward. It's hard to put it all together when, you're, when you don't have the play itself. And he took those and he created two different suites, each of them highlighting four different songs from the incidental music. And that's typically what you hear orchestras play. So you've put your finger on something that I've never
0: understood, especially with saying this, that Greek wrote incidental music to the play. I'm trying to think of how, I could pay attention to what's going on on stage with this music playing in the background, on the side. And it, And what I'm hearing you say is, no, what's happened is these things have evolved and Grieg sort of uh, finished them off or made them into standalones. Yes, so, so that's yeah.
1: typically what you hear, but it is still incidental music to the play. When I was a student at the Oslo International Summer School uh, yeah. in like 1999, ages ago, I went and saw a production of Pyrgynt on a lake shore and in a little cabin off to the side was the orchestra pit and the orchestra played all the incidental music to it. So the actors are singing on stage at some places, there are dancers to dance to the music. It really, just like in a movie, there's constant movie soundtrack going on on the stage as well, you know, in, in the background and that really changes the mood or drives drama in the movie and this is exactly the same sort of thing it accentuates in the hall of the mountain king where the trolls are all after pear as he's trying trying to escape them and without the music it would be awful (laughs) but you just need the music and you're you're already in that mountain with all those trolls chasing you and like the the tension rises you can feel your blood pressure going up and it It's so integral to a play and every play has some sort of incidental music that goes with it, but it evokes such Norwegian, very, you know, grotesquely Norwegian sense that it really has taken off as as a work of its own musically, even without the play. And the play is long and it's confusing. And so (laughs) it may be better this way. (laughs) Yeah. Do you feel
0: like you could summarize what happens in the play?
1: sure i'll do my best so the lead character is pear Per Gint. And he lives in a town in Norway. And he's got important people in his life. His mother Osa and then Solvay, who bless her heart, he doesn't deserve. No, he doesn't. And he does not <laughs> deserve her. I don't, I don't know why she waits for him. I don't know. But he decides to go on an adventure and just, you know, throw everything uh, away behind him and ends up abducting a bride from her wedding, taking her up into the mountains, abandoning her to go play with some some farm girls up in the mountains. Then he leaves them and then he goes and seduces a Huldra or a troll king's daughter. Of course, as soon as he were to marry her, she would turn from a beautiful woman into an ugly troll. As soon as he realizes that he's not going to get the riches from the troll king, he escapes. He runs away from all these trolls who are chasing him. And he gets to the little hole in the mountain, just as the sun is coming up and the church bells are ringing. So he's saved. This is a theme that comes throughout the whole thing. He gets somewhere and the church bells ring and the sun comes up and he's saved and the women take care of him. He leaves that. He goes on some more adventures. He ends up down in the desert in Arabia, where he again, tries to seduce another woman who won't have him. She's too smart for him. Um, But, you know, he comes in and it's this grand processional of he is this prophet and all of this exciting stuff. And then, you know, they figure out who he really is. And then he has to escape. He's got some partners on this whole trip who end up robbing him and abandoning him, just like he has done to so many others and realizes at that point that he probably should come home while he's away. His mom, Osa, dies and Solvi. Holds down the fort and, you know, anticipates his his return while she continues to live her life. So he decides to return. He's on the way home. He gets in a shipwreck. Somehow he survives and makes it to shore and then makes it back into the town where then he ends up dying in Solvi's arms. But he is saved by the pious chorus who comes out and sings the Pentecostal hymn at the very, very end. And while Solvi is singing a lullaby to him so he can sleep peacefully and move on.
0: Now, I will insert here that Laura and I went off on a long tangent of what Ibsen was trying to say with Pere Gynt. how it was that this rogue could return after years of lying and cheating and seducing and colossal self-centeredness and, and still be redeemed, or so it seemed, by Solovey when he came home and laid his head down and died. Now, as much as I love literary analysis, and I love to go into everything we talked about for the sake of time and your patience, I'll let you look this up and decide for yourself what it meant. So back to our chat. Where does Solvay's song come in all this? I remember her singing it while he's like, meanwhile, back on the ranch.
1: Yeah, he's in Arabia at this time. And he's just tried to seduce uh, Anitra, who then, you know, takes whatever he's giving it, giving her, but then won't take him. And then back at the ranch, Solvay is there keeping everything running and moving. And she's just kind of looking out and hoping he comes back and sings a little tune to keep herself occupied while she's doing whatever she's doing. So it's in act four that this happens. So it's pretty far on in the in the five act play. So she sings Solvi's song, a few things happen, then she sings a little reprieve of part of Solvi's song. And then after that, pair comes back and arrives and then it's pentecostal sunday and the, and all of that stuff happens so it's really toward the end of everything after he's been off gallivanting
0: you want to talk about it, kind of how it's built i mean there there's kind of the longing part and then it seems like there's almost a the high not yodeling but
1: it just it's it's based off of folk off of traditional norwegian folk singing it? uh-huh. yeah it's not an actual folk song there are very few folk songs that Grieg actually used, and that was primarily just in piano arrangements of folk songs, and it's very distinctive. Uh, It's strophic, so it means it has two verses. There's this beautiful cello intro and coda at the end that leads you in, and then it's very introspective in a way. Uh, And so the two verses where she's singing the words, she's hoping he comes back, and she hopes everything is well with him wherever he is, and that he's still being pious and believes in God, and that she will wait for him as she promised. Uh, and then the little, little thing, da, 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 that part, mm-hmm. I see it, maybe she's spinning or doing some work throughout the house. And it just accompanies that, you know, they didn't have radios or, or smart speakers back then. So <laughs> you provided the music themselves. Anything else you'd like to mention or touch on? You had asked about Solvice Song and my connection to it. Yes. You know to go into that talk yes. about that okay the first time I sang soul by song I was 14 and I was a freshman in high school and it was for music festival solo and ensemble competition right. and I had been doing school Fjorden Norwegian camp for a couple of years but not really enough to speak of enough Norwegian to be able to do that comfortably luckily my father lived in Norway 20 years prior to me and spoke enough Norwegian that he could um, helped me. And we actually had to take out the German and write in the Norwegian. And then he helped me with the pronunciation. So I sang it for the first time when I was 14 for solo and ensemble competition and got, you know, top marks for everything. But I sang it in Norwegian and the judges couldn't figure out what to do with it because they'd never encountered anyone singing in Norwegian before. So that was where it started. And, you know, I've literally been singing it ever since. I every couple of years it comes up. And actually the last five years it's come up multiple times a year pre-COVID. I had concerts back to back with different orchestras singing it. <laughs> like one night, Saturday night, and then Sunday afternoon, two different orchestras, both of them Swivai song. And it's become such like a basic aspect of who I am musically. It's just there as part of what I do. So taking it now to this next step of actually producing the whole or the this level of incidental music, it's just, it sort of fulfills that 14 year old's dream when singing it and just exploring the Norwegian from that very, very beginning point. Uh, so I'm super excited about taking it to that point of fruition.
0: So at long last, let's hear this recording of Laura singing Solve's song with the Wenatchee Valley Symphony in 2017. a beautiful piece, beautifully sung by someone who lives and breathes Greek and speaks Norwegian in multiple dialects. A couple notes here. In another interview on our show, perhaps mm, the most popular of all episodes, it's called The House That Ron Logi Built, the Stabor. You meet Ron Logi and his wife, Charlene. Both of these lovely people I've gotten to meet, and you may have worked it out, that, in fact, Ron and Charlene are Laura's parents. So you might enjoy this podcast, The House that Ron Logie Built, hearing about the Stabor that was built in Montana, where Laura grew up. For additional recordings of Laura and links to her website, to the Northwest Greek Society, the Mostly Nordic Concert Series, Details of her upcoming concerts, such as the Complete Songs of Edvard Grieg, which is being mounted in September of 2022. Visit our page for this episode on the nordiconTAP.com website. Please do leave a comment if you enjoyed the show. Both Laura and I wanted to thank Lorianne Reinhall, who we greatly appreciate as an avid supporter and promoter of the Northwest Greek Society and this podcast. Catch my interview with Lori Ann in another Nordic on Tap episode. Our introductory music is The Traditional New March by Alfred Morten Hoyrup and Ruthie Dornfeld. And our outgoing music is composed and performed by Daryl Jackson at daryljacksonmusic.com. And so it's time to say tuz and Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Eric Stavney, And we'll see you again. Viseis on Nordic on Town.